places and let's get into it. I hope you have your Bibles with you. We're in Romans chapter 4. So again, wishing everybody a happy, happy Mother's Day. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day as well. But before you have the chance to go on with the rest of your day, here we are and we're before God's Word and uh, we, we're going to look at some things. It's very interesting. We're coming systematically through the book of Romans and obviously we are to this point here now. It is Mother's Day weekend. We all of us as children ourselves have learned the value of our moms as adults. We desire, typically, natural desire of adults is to have kids. Uh, most do desire to have kids. And uh, certainly the most important thing that a parent could possibly do for their kids is to help them to understand what biblical salvation really is. And that's the title of our message today as we're in Romans chapter 4 in the first eight verses, understanding biblical salvation. And what we're going to do in these first eight verses, in just a second I'll read them to you, um, we're going to see an example. There's actually a couple of examples, but one of them is about Abraham. And you know the story of Abraham and Sarah and how they desired to have children and they were not able to have children until God shows up with a tremendous promise. And the promise is of a miraculous birth in their old age. And what we'll see in this passage is how Abraham responds to God's word really does set the standard for ages to come. His response to God's word really typifies for us what our response to God's word needs to be as we understand this critically important, ultimately important subject of biblical salvation. So if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 4, follow along as I read the first eight verses. What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness, Without work, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. We're going to look at that in some detail. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll jump right into it. Heavenly Father, as we come before this passage of Scripture, obviously this is a, the beginning of a couple of chapters where you lay out in great detail exactly what biblical salvation is all about. And so as we jump into these eight verses, I just pray that our hearts and our minds would be clear. I pray that we'd be open to what you have to say, that we would understand what you need for us to understand so that we can respond properly to you. And I am so, so thankful that you have so blessed us and so allowed us this privilege of receiving salvation as a free gift. And we just need to understand exactly how to appropriate that. So I pray you'd speak to our hearts as we continue and pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, in your outline, you have two main points. And the first one is very clear. It's justification. And really this point of justification, um, it is the theme. It's the theme that we saw last week coming up at the end of chapter 3. It's the theme we'll see all the way through chapters 4 and chapter 5. And uh, it starts out in verse number 1, what shall we then say, say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? 
And so we're going to talk about that in just a second. And if you were here last week, you would have learned with us that when we think about the word justified, if you're not familiar with some of the lingo in the Bible, if you've not spent years in church and just immediately understand what that word means, we understood last week that literally you could break it down this way. To be justified would be to say, it is, my life is just as if I'd never sinned. In other words, God looks at me sinless because of what Christ did for me. And so that's really what we understand justified to be all about. It's a very simple way to remember it, and it's a very clear definition of what it is. And what that all has to deal with, when we talk about salvation, eternal salvation, and justification by faith alone, and that's our theme, like I said, coming through these next couple of chapters, what we're talking about very simply, again, this is not to be redundant, but it is your eternal salvation. That is what we're talking about. This has to do with your eternal salvation salvation. And so in Romans chapter 3 and verse 28, maybe the key verse of that last section of scripture where it says, therefore we conclude, here's the conclusion, that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now that's good news, isn't it? I mean, isn't it good news that God doesn't have to measure our works and our deeds to see if we're good enough to earn the right to be able to have eternal life with him? And in order to illustrate this, he gives us an example from the Old Testament, and that example is Abraham. And Abraham is a very clear character, and we're going to see some things that says, he calls Abraham our father, and then he says, as pertaining to the flesh. So where he says, our father as pertaining to the flesh, without question, the audience is much more of a Jewish audience. And he goes on and he says, well, what has Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh, what has he found? So That tells us that whatever it is that we're going to learn from Abraham, Abraham is really the first guy who had this offer extended to him. The people leading up to Abraham really didn't understand it the way Abraham could have understood it. Abraham found something that others would not have otherwise understood. And it goes on and it asks a question. Hypothetically, in verse number two, it says, For if Abraham were justified by works... Then it goes on and says, then he would have whereof to glory or to boast or to brag. In other words, if Abraham could have said, wow, I have done all these righteous things, then his eternal salvation, he could point to the fact, well, of course, I did all that. I worked hard for that thing. But the Bible says, but not before God. Because it doesn't work that way with God. That's not the case. We don't get our salvation as a result of what we do. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, another very familiar passage of Scripture ties both these ideas together, where it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, notice, not of works, lest any man should boast. Can you imagine what heaven would be like if we did enough good things to earn our way in? And some people earned their way in, as we would say, by the skin of their teeth, and other people earned their way in with abundantly good works, leftover extra, if you might consider it that way. And at the end of the day, what would heaven really be like? Wouldn't it be just a big, ugly, prideful mess of carnality where everybody's bragging about how wonderful things they did to be able to secure their slot in eternity? God wipes the slate clean, and he just shows us all in the first three chapters of Romans how desperately sinful we all are, and we don't have a chance to be able to earn our way into heaven. But he says, it's okay, I'll take care of it for you. And he does all the work for us. And so this is a critically important thing. He says, if Abraham could have done it on his own, 
then he could brag about it. But he's like, but he can't brag about it. Not before God. Because the standard is too high. And that's not how it works. If you looked over in verse number four, for example, where it says, now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, if you're going to work for something, if you're going to try and earn some reward, which by the way, rewards in the scripture are things that we earn as a result of our faithful service after salvation. But if you're going to earn some reward, then you can't reckon or account for this gift of salvation as, as a gift, as grace. Grace literally is just a free gift. If, if you worked for it, it's not a gift. You earned it. Uh, you don't work all week at your job and then receive your paycheck and say, oh, thank you for this gift. No, you worked for that. But he says, no, not, not in the case of salvation does it work that way. That would be a debt. That would be God would owe you eternal life if you worked for it. But that's, again, not how it works. I don't know if you understand it or not, but do you realize today that all the world's major religions really teach that error? That's the difference between biblical Christianity and all the religions of the world. The religions of this world all conclude that there is something you have to do some list of things, some list of good works that you have to achieve and accomplish and somehow in their mind that if you just do more of the good and less of the bad, God understands we're all sinners and kind of winks at that, but if you do enough good things and don't do the super bad ones, then you're going to be okay. That's religion. That's man's attempt to try and reach God and to strive to achieve something before God. That's what they think. And that's a problem, because that's not the biblical story. I don't know what all of you have had in your background. Maybe there's some of you here today that still think that. Maybe you came to church today because somebody invited you. Maybe you've been coming a long time, but deep in your heart you feel like, because you're a nice person and a good citizen and law-abiding and honest and hardworking and do some things in church and, and whatever the case might be, that you therefore, of course, shall, will have your place in heaven because you have done enough good things to be able to do that. And the message of Romans end of 3, 4, and 5 is very clear that that's not the case at all. That's not the way that it works. That's not how God set it up. So verse number 3 makes it very clear. It asks the question that we should all ask. So, what saith the Scripture? Isn't that really the question we all should ask? What saith the Scripture? We shouldn't ask, what saith my church? We shouldn't say, what saith my tradition? We shouldn't even say, what saith my conscience? Right? I mean, it doesn't really matter. You might listen to some of the things that the Bible teaches, and you might sit there and think, hmm, that just doesn't sound right to me. That just doesn't sound right to me. Well, at the end of the day, with all due respect, what difference does it make how it sounds to any of us. What matters is what did God say? Because he said what he meant to say and he meant exactly what he said. And he said it on purpose so that we could not be confused, that we could understand. And then it's just a matter of our faith. It's a matter of just believing what God said. And literally, it references as a result of verse three, what saith the scripture? And it takes us back to Genesis chapter 15 and verse number six. When this event happened in the life of Abraham, and it says in Genesis 15, 6, and he believed in the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. And so in verse number 5, interestingly, it says, but to him that worketh not, back to Romans, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. 
And that very simply, again, we are in a church that has preached and taught the simplicity of the gospel as the Bible lays it out for years and years and years. And whether you're new to this church, you've been here a long time, probably most all of you already understand this. This is not something that we need to go over and over again, but very, very clearly, this is not about what we do, it's about what he already did. And that is the story of the gospel. The gospel is so very clearly communicated. I have a few references for you just to hammer at home. Acts chapter 16 and verse 31. The question very distinctly was asked actually in verse 30, what must I do to be saved? The answer is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the answer. That's what you must do. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10, verse number 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Even the Lord Jesus himself, when he was on this earth and began his earthly ministry of preaching, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15 says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe the gospel. It's all about putting our faith in something. So if you were to take the time and you were to do a survey. Sometimes people do this. There are surveys like this that are on the internet if you want to go look at them. And you were just going to go around the community and you were just going to ask people around here, how do you think somebody gets to heaven? What do you think? And if you did a random sampling across our society, uh, even in this area where we live, how do you think people get to heaven? You will find that the vast majority of people, the typical answer will be some form of, well, do good. Live right. Go to church. Be a good person. Don't commit the really bad sins. And typically the answer you're going to get is, is going to be this mindset that is natural maybe to our minds, thinking how in the world could I possibly get this ultimate gift of living forever in joy and peace and harmony and do nothing? I mean, i got to do something, right? I mean, it's just our, our conscience, our logic just wants us to say, i got to do something, and as a result, sometimes we reject the very simplicity of the gospel. But that's not how it's set up. Because to do good is not the Bible message. In fact, it's 180 degrees apart from it. It's absolutely in contradiction to the Bible message where it says it's absolutely not what you do. And so if somehow in the deep crevices of your heart and in your mind, you're trusting in what you do to get you to heaven, can I just lovingly encourage you today to stop doing that and start trusting in what he already did for you? Because that's the story. That's what it's all about. And we can discuss for the rest of our lives and joyfully discuss different aspects of doctrinal teaching within the Christian faith. But friends, if you don't get this one down, when your life comes to its natural end physically, this is really the only one that matters, is it not? I mean, this is the truth. This is the single most important thing you have to take care of in your life. As long as God is allowing you health and breath, he's waiting for you to make this decision. And if you have not yet made it before this day's over, I, I pray that you will. Well, we're in Romans chapter 4, and these are very clear statements, and these are things that many of us would already know. These are things that we would affirm. And many of you who have already made that decision are sitting peacefully in your heart thinking, thank God for what he has done. I'm so thankful I'm in on the family of God. This is a wonderful gift. I have been enjoying it for years. But maybe if you're a Bible student, you'll recognize that this passage of Scripture goes to, or needs to be understood together with another passage of Scripture, that if read side by side, appear to be a contradiction. 
And I feel like it would be unfair if we don't address this apparent contradiction. Now, we believe that the Scripture is absolutely perfect and holy, absolutely, and that God gave it to us and it's right, and there are absolutely no contradictions in the Bible. We believe that here, and we teach that unashamedly. But there are places in the Scripture that sometimes are harder to be understood, and things appear to be as though they would be a contradiction. And so I want us to address it. I want us to look right at it. And so the two places, with one hand, keep Romans 4. With the other hand, go ahead and grab James chapter 2. And we're going to look at a couple of verses of Scripture in James chapter 2. Starting in verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Now, in the context of Romans 4, we'd say, of course. In the context of James, it's a rhetorical question with the obvious answer intending to be, no, of course not. Go down to verse number 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? These are things that, of course, we already understand this. We, we know the story of Abraham. I'm just reminding you of these things. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Now, if you're young to the scriptures and you haven't been studying it a lot of years and maybe you have or haven't come across that passage and you read that and you think, yeah, that makes sense. I got to do some stuff. For sure I believe, but I got to believe and I got to do some stuff. Otherwise, I can't be justified. And if you've been in the Bible long enough, you realize that these two passages exist and they do appear to contradict. I mean, there is an explicit sentence. A man is justified by faith alone without the deeds of the works. Can't you see right here where it's clearly said, by works a man is justified and not by faith alone. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Where are we with this thing? We got to understand it. And if the word of God is right and holy and just and pure and true, and it is, by the way, there has to be a way to understand it. And that's what we're going to see today. So hope you're glad you came. All right, so before we jump into explaining all what it's about, let me just say this, that in the day and time in which we live, and a lot of us understand this to be the time of what we call the Laodicean church age. It's a, it's a time when the, the, the faithfulness of the body of Christ is kind of at an all-time low. And, and what we find out in the day and time in which we live is that there's a lot of people who stand up as Bible teachers in this time, and they have trouble with these apparent contradictions. And in order, with good intentions, desiring to make them match, What a a typical Laodicean Bible teacher would do is they will take a passage like James chapter 2, and in order to make it match Romans chapter 4, they will change what God said in James chapter 2 in order to make it match Romans chapter 4 so that they can sleep good at night. And, And that, friends, is a dangerous thing to do. Because although we might want to emphasize James chapter 2 by simply saying, True saving faith will always result in works. Which, by the way, is not an erroneous statement. But it's also not what James said. We have to be very careful to see and to hear what God said through James in its context with all of that that we're going to see in a second. And not be so bold as to change God's word as though we're trying to help him out. Because he kind of got in a bind here and he kind of didn't say it right. 
And, and people not intending to be sarcastic like I, I mean, people just, they do that. They just do that. And it's dangerous. And you have to be very careful. And so, it all comes from the fact that people, when they look at the scriptures, and I'm going to enter into a subject now that I know may or may not sit well with everybody. People, when they look through the scriptures, they desire for all peoples of all eras, of all times, throughout all history, to receive salvation the exact same way all throughout history. They, they desire for that to be the case. They feel like that's the way it should be. And we're going to see today that that's just not biblically defensible. For those of us that study theology, there's a word that we throw around, and it's called dispensations or dispensationalism. And the idea is, is that there are different times throughout history where God dispenses his grace and his love and his mercy to mankind in different ways. And it's something that we study in detail in our advanced discipleship courses that are available to everybody. But it is something that explains, it's the only possible way that we can understand these things. Otherwise, we come out just scratching our head and thinking maybe there is a mistake. Maybe the Bible isn't 100% true. And that's why there's religions all over that just can't adhere to the infallibility of the scriptures. So what we need to do is unravel this mystery, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a couple of points. First point is this. If you're a born-again Christian, you are no longer a Jew or a Gentile. The Bible very clearly addresses three distinct groups of people, and there are only three. There can be only three. There's not two, and there's not four. There's three groups of people. There are the Jews, there are the Gentiles, and there are the church. And they're laid out for you in 1 Corinthians 10.32, where he says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Why did he say it that way? Because those are the three categories. There are no other categories. You say, wait a minute. I thought Jews and Gentiles pretty much covered everybody because the definition of a Gentile is a non-Jew. So we have the Jews and the non-Jews. Doesn't that pretty much cover everybody? It sure does until somebody gets saved. Because the Bible says very, very clearly that once you are in Christ, you are a new creature. Old things are passed away and all things are become new. And so we look at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. So spiritually speaking in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. Ye are all one in Christ Jesus. So when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are no longer, it doesn't matter if you're from a Hebrew heritage or a Gentile heritage, you are now a son of God, a brand new creature. There are three categories and only three categories. Among those who would be the unsaved crowd of this world, the religious crowd, you're either a Jew or a non-Jew. But once you enter into Christ, you leave the Jew or non-Jew thing behind. And that's an important thing to understand. The next thing I want you to understand is the book of James is not written to the church. But the book of James is written to Jews. Because James chapter 1 and verse number 1 starts out with its very introduction saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting. So he sends his greeting to his audience, and his audience is not the church of God, which is in Rome, for example. The book of Romans is written to the church, which is in Rome. The book of James is written to the 12 tribes of Israel, which are scattered abroad. So we've got a different audience. We've got a different audience, and we've got a different message, obviously. But we understand that the book of James is in the New Testament. We understand that the book of James is written after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, how does that all play out? Well, one of the ways that it plays out is that there is a doctrinal T 
teaching. There is a, there is a prophetic teaching of the book of James that points to a time that is still yet future. And the doctrinal application of the book of James directed to the 12 tribes of Israel is pointed towards a time that we call the tribulation. It's after the church of Jesus Christ is raptured out and there is a approximately seven-year period of time, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, for those of you that understand that. And, and it is a time where, again, God's attention comes now away from the church who's raptured out and points back to the nation of Israel to fulfill the, to take care of the loose ends, the things from the Old Testament that had not yet been totally sewn and buttoned up. And he's going to do that during that seven-year time. And he needs to have books of the Bible that are specifically written to those people in that time so they will know how to behave to be able to please the Lord during that dispensation. And that's an important thing. So it's directed at the Jews in the tribulation after the church age. So there are things in the book of James that just don't fit in the church, like chapter 2 and this justification issue. The other thing I want you to understand that the reference to Abraham in Romans chapter 4 is to Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham and Sarah, they desired to have children, they couldn't have children, and God shows up and he says, man, I'm going to make your children like the stars of the sky in number. And it says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And so God shows up and he gives that promise. The reference in James chapter 2 when it says Abraham was justified by works when he offered Isaac upon the altar. So ultimately the child comes. It is Isaac. He grows up. He's a young man. How old is he? I don't know, 20, 30, anywhere from 15 to 30. Pick your time. It doesn't matter. It's decades later when he finally goes to offer Isaac on the altar. He's about to actually slay his son. God stops his hand last minute, takes a ram out of the thicket, sacrifices him in place. You know the story. That is, these, these events referenced in Romans 4 and James 2 are not referring to the same point in time in Abraham's life. They are different events divided by, let's just say, 20 years or so. That's an important thing. Now, with that as a background, I'm going to give you the solution. We're going to start with the New Testament picture. And this is important because this is what we're here to learn in Romans. The New Testament picture. Now, know this. When the Holy Spirit wants to teach us, people in the church age, justification by faith alone, in the book of Romans, written to the church in Rome, he references that aspect of Abraham's life that illustrates that faith. Simply believing what God said. And the spiritual picture is a beautiful picture. It was a promise of a miracle. Abram and Sarah were getting on in years and they were, they were, they were past childbearing age. Physically, it would have been impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a child on their own, but they believed what God said. God said it will happen, and he took God at his word, although the physical evidence was to the contrary. That, by the way, is exactly what he expects of us, to take God at his word, even if it doesn't make sense how it's going to happen. And the promise literally was that you're going to have children that will be like the stars of the sky, of the heaven. And we could take the time to study, and I pulled out one reference for you in Revelation chapter 1, but stars represent spiritual beings. It is a foreshadow or a picture of the coming of the rebirth of the sons of God, the church of Jesus Christ, where it says in Revelation 1.20, for example, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, 
The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks that thou sawest are the seven churches. And angels are called sons of God, and so are we. And so the picture is a wonderful thing. Ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes through the lineage of Abraham according to the flesh. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 4 and verse number 16 that Abraham is the father of us all. And that's because in Galatians 3.29 it says, If you be Christ's, if you're saved, church, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So because Christ comes through the lineage of Abraham and we literally come through the lineage of Christ, but spiritually speaking, not physically, right? We're not of the 12 tribes and the tribe of Judah. We're not a part of that. Now we therefore get into the family of Abraham, but we are the spiritual seed of Abraham, not the physical seed of Abraham. That's an entirely different thing. And that's the picture. That's the lesson for us today. That's how Romans 4 is exactly right. That's how the Holy Spirit lays it out so that we can understand exactly what we need to do and how we get in on that inheritance and that blessing. But that is not the entire story of the life of Abraham. That aspect that's pulled out to teach us something in Romans is not the whole story of Abraham's life as it actually happened. We have to go to the Old Testament reality. That's our next point. We have the New Testament picture, but the Old Testament reality is, is that faith in the Old Testament, it was a personal belief between a man and God on a specific thing that God told him about. And God's message wasn't necessarily the same for everybody, right? So if you keep in your mind Hebrews chapter 11, many of you know that Hebrews 11 is this hall of fame of people from the Old Testament that exemplified faith in their life. And it tells just a verse or two about their story on how they believe God. But what was the message that they believed about God? So you have the story of Noah. And in Hebrews 11 it says God told him it was going to rain, so he built a boat. And you go down and it talks about Abraham, and it has a lot to say about Abraham. It first talks about how he, God told him just to leave home. I'm not going to tell you where you're going to go, but just, just go leave home and go, go to the place I'm going to tell you. And he believed God and he did it. Then he told him the deal about Isaac and ultimately the children and, and all of that, and he believed God about that. You go down to Hebrews 11, it talks about Moses' parents and, and how they feared God more than Pharaoh, and they kept the baby alive when all the male children of the Hebrews were supposed to be slaughtered. It talks about Moses and how he forsook Egypt and believed God and the whole uh, exodus out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea and all of that. It goes down and it talks about Rahab the harlot and how she believed God and receiving the Jewish spies into Jericho and, and fearing Jehovah God of Israel. Listen, these are all different specific events and none of those stories have anything to do with the gospel. Have anything to do with the gospel except in some picture or some type, but literally what was going on is God just said something's going to happen, and these people believed him. That was their Old Testament faith. So when Abraham believed what God said in Genesis 15 concerning having children, the Bible says that the Lord imputed his righteousness to Abraham. We're going to talk about imputation in just a minute. What does that mean, okay? But Abraham was faithful in his trust for God. So in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, it says, In the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful 
Abraham. Now, again, to dissect this accurately without changing what the Bible says, you have to be careful because Galatians 3, 8, and 9, it says that God said unto Abraham, in thee shall all nations be blessed. Your mind might run to Genesis chapter 12 where we get the first story of Abraham, but if you did in Genesis 12, it doesn't say all the nations will be blessed. It says all the families, all the families. And you can argue all you want how families are like nations or nations are like families, but they're two different words. They're spelled different. It does say a little further down in the narrative, though, in chapter 18 of Genesis, specifically this. In Genesis 18, starting in verse 17, and we're going to get the message from it. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham the thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? There it is. That's what he's referring to. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. Had a good illustration of that this morning. And they shall keep the way of the Lord and do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. God says about Abraham, I know Abraham. I know he will be faithful. I know that Abraham will do what I ask him to do. And that's the key. Because Abraham's faithfulness culminated in the sacrificing the promised seed, Isaac, or being prepared to do that anyway, while all along trusting that God would still keep his promise about that seed. We don't have time for all the detailed Bible study, but very clearly, if you compare that story in Genesis 22, when he's going to sacrifice Isaac, and the, the reference of that in Hebrews 11 that I just mentioned quickly, God makes it very clear. Abraham knew that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead if he had to. He still believed God, but he was going to live it out and do exactly what he said. James 2.21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when? When he offered Isaac his son upon the altar. And then go down to verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled. Fulfilled. Which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. So Abraham proved his faith in a tangible way. In Genesis 22, in verse number 12, within that narrative of taking Isaac, and God stops him at the last second, and he says, For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. So there is this visible manifestation that proves your faith. And that's what God's saying in Genesis 22 about Abraham's faith. Going back to James 2 and verse 24. Ye see then how that by works. Works are the visible manifestation. A man is justified and not by faith only. So Abraham's faith was completed in Genesis 22. It started in Genesis 15. It was completed in Genesis 22. That's what it says in James. It was made perfect. His justification, literally, in the Old Testament reality, was a process. It took time. 20, 30 years, whatever it was. It was years between believing the promise of God's word and the child growing up and being offered and then being declared righteous in the sight of men. You know what, y'all? That's not how you and I get saved. That's not the story for the New Testament Christian, literally. But notice this. I hope this hadn't freaked you out. This ought to encourage you because here's what's happened. 
the Holy Spirit accurately draws out the proper illustrations from Abraham's life, recorded accurately, historically in the Old Testament, and communicates them properly to the right audience at the right time so that they get what they need to respond to God in the way that God requires. That's how it plays out. That's why you can have different places in the Bible that seemingly contradict, but when you break down to whom they are written and the context through which they are written, you can get the big picture and understand how it plays out. At the end of the day, for those of us in the church, for sure the message is loud and clear over and over again. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy he saves us. It's all him. It has nothing to do with us. That's justification. This is a doctrine of the scripture. This is an important thing. All right, let's talk about imputation, and this won't take very long. Verses six through eight. And it says, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Okay, some form of this word impute appears seven times in the book of Romans. Six of them are in chapter four. So this is the impute chapter, okay? What does impute mean? We gave you a simple definition of justification that you can remember. I'm gonna give you a simple definition of impute that will help you remember. Okay, impute, I-M-P-U-T-E. Take the I-M, throw it away. Take the E, throw it away. What's left? Put. Live with that. What does impute righteousness? God put his righteousness on Abraham. Just remember the put in the middle, and you, you're, you're good. You're good to go. That's really what it means. Imputation is the act of God putting his righteousness on you without your good works. And that is wonderful news unless you happen to be one of those people counting on your good works, and then maybe it's not good news. So I gave you a couple of definitions to try and help you understand these two things. These two things, by the way, are so closely related and they so closely work together. In fact, they, the words themselves are used interchangeably. They're very similar. I put it this way for your definition. Justification is to judicially, judicially removes your sin from your account. It's a judicial act of God where he officially declares you just as if you had never sinned. Imputation judicially adds God's righteousness to your account. So they're very, very similar. And in the case of imputation, he takes us to David. Okay, and so David is the example. And when he talks about David in Romans 4, 6, 7, and 8, and verses 7 and 8 specifically, he's quoting from Psalms 32 and the first two verses. And in Psalms 32, first two verses, it says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, in whose spirit there is no guile. David writes this 32nd Psalm after his two big sins. The sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and then consequently the sin of murdering her husband Uriah. And after those two huge sins, David is guilty, and obviously guilty. And according to the law of Moses, there was no sacrifice for those sins, only the death penalty. But David, David was given mercy instead of judgment. In 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse number 13 and recounting the story as it came about with David and the prophet Nathan, and David said unto Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, 
the Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. That's imputation. By the way, it's important for you to understand. As you read through the Old Testament, others did not get this imputation. Others did not get this mercy. Others did not get this same shake. If you went and looked at the life of Joab, the captain of David's army, after he commits murder, he goes in literally to the altar, grabs the horns of the altar, and begs for mercy, and he's still killed. Uh, Not everybody got this deal. David is the exception in the Old Testament against the rule of law. God gave David something special, and the Bible specifically calls it the sure mercies of David. David is unique. He's the exception to the rule. And in Acts chapter 13, verses 33 to 35, God hath fulfilled the same us unto us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, talking about the Lord Jesus, this day have I begotten thee, And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That literally comes from Isaiah 55 and verse number 3. Incline your ear and come unto me and hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. And the fact that God gave mercy rather than judgment in establishing this everlasting covenant presents to us the doctrine of eternal security. Eternal security. Here's how imputation works. Let's say a book is written. And that book is The Life and Times of Jeff Bartell. And that book is full of sin and guilt and lying and cheating and ugliness and carnality and blasphemy and sacrilege. And then there's another book written. But this book is the life and times of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this book is just purity and holiness and goodness and service and absolutely no sin. So much so that the judicial conclusion that came down when Jesus was being tried from Pilate was... I find no fault in this man. So you have two books. Imputation is is as if God takes the cover off one book and puts it on the other book. And literally the two books swap covers. So now the book of the life and times of Jeff Bartell has all this purity and holiness and righteousness and no fault whatsoever because... It is really the life of Jesus Christ imputed his righteousness to me. And all of my sin as a result is placed on Jesus Christ. And the life and times of Jesus Christ then becomes all of the ugliness as a result of my wretched life. For which he died on the cross paying the penalty for all of us. That's what it means in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 where it says, For he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And if this little illustration with the two books and swapping covers, if that's an, if that's an accurate illustration, and, and I think it is, and if God literally did that for us, and, and he certainly did, then you've got to understand There is no way that you can lose your salvation. It's absolutely impossible. And even when it referred to the Lord Jesus, it said that he will not ever go back again and return to corruption. 
That's our life. We receive Christ as our Savior. We will never return again to death. We have spiritual life. There is no more death. It's eternal. So justification is dealing with our eternal salvation and imputation is dealing with our eternal security. And God gives us these great blessings and they are all free gifts. That's what he does. When you understand what God has done for you, you will never again doubt and wonder about eternity as though somehow you make some giant mistake, which people do after they receive Christ as their Savior, and somehow your salvation is null and void. That's a heresy. That's not true. God loves us so much. Let me ask you a couple questions. We're done. Do you understand biblical salvation better today? Have you, previous to this morning, been trusting in your good works to get you to heaven? They won't. Hell is full of people who have lived good lives but never understood the truth of the gospel. Can I just encourage you? Just believe what God said. Believe that he said when he tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. Believe when he tells us that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Believe when he tells us that Christ is the only one who could and did die on the cross to pay the penalty that we could not possibly pay for our sins and therefore offers to us the free gift of eternal life. And in Romans 10 it says, as a result, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Maybe you're here today and this message is for you. I want to give you the chance to respond. So let's pray together. If you'd bow your heads and close your eyes, I just want to pray for you. Before I do, I want to just ask you a quick question, and that's this. If you say, Jeff, that's me. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a good guy, but wow, I, I've been trusting in my goodness, not Christ's, and, and I want to receive him as my Lord and Savior this morning. I just want to pray for you. We're not going to bother you, but I do want to pray for you. I want to know who you are, where you're at. So if you just raise your hand unashamedly, say, please pray for me. I want to receive Christ as my Savior today. I don't know that I've done it before. I want to do it today. I see somebody in the back. God bless you. Anybody else? Upstairs, downstairs? I see a young lady upstairs. God bless you. Thanks for being honest. Anybody else? Just raise your hand. Put it down. I just want to know. Is there anybody? Say, just pray for me. I'm just not sure. I want to be sure. A couple of people. All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbled and honored and thankful for what you have done for us. When we could do nothing, you did everything. You loved us so much. You had every right in the world just to judge us and to send us out from your presence forever. But you didn't do that. You cared. And you gave us your word, and it is perfect, and it is holy, and it reveals very clearly your will and your plan for our life. I want to pray right now for these couple of people who very sincerely and honestly have raised their hands saying, you know what? I need to do that. I need to give my heart and my life to the Lord Jesus. I don't want to pretend that my life is good enough, and it's not. I I want to receive you as my Lord and Savior. So, Lord, I, I pray that just in their own heart, in their own way, that they would just cry out to you. Maybe just say, Lord, I, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've blown it. I know I'm not perfect. But I know you are. So please come to my heart and my life and forgive me my sins and give me the free gift of eternal life. And, Lord, I'm so humbled. I'm so thankful. I'll, I give to you all my life. Whatever it is, it's not much, but I give it all to you. You're the boss. You're the Lord. Come and take over. And I'll serve you all the days of my life. I pray that they would do that with all their heart right now. And I pray for all the rest of us that maybe we're just reminded of the goodness. Maybe we've doubted 
like our salvation could be lost because of some bad things that we've done. Your love goes far deeper than our sin. I'm so thankful for that. I'm thankful for the gift of eternal life. I'm thankful for the gift of eternal security that can never be lost. We couldn't do anything to earn it. We certainly can't do anything to keep it. I pray, God, that you would just be honored in our lives and we would live victoriously and go out boldly and tell other people about your goodness. We love you, Lord. We commit these things to you and we pray in your name. Amen.